Hello and welcome to the Korean Beauty Show podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, K-beauty expert, resident of Seoul, South Korea, and of course, your guide to the world of Korean beauty. Now, for today's episode, I was uh, teasing it the other day on Tuesday, but what I want to have a chat about is little trip down memory lane and to talk about how K-beauty has taken over the beauty world and what are some of the really big changes that I have seen in the industry in the last say 12 years or so. Uh, and the reason that I'm doing this, what has prompted me to take this little reflection moment is that we have reached a really, really big milestone for the show. And that is that we have recently celebrated 100,000 downloads. Uh, and that is just firstly wild. That is so crazy. Um, I'm really, really thankful to everyone that has been tuning into the show. I'm so thankful to all the people that have reached out and let me know that they're listening. Let me know what you're liking about the show, what you want to hear more of. Uh, a big thanks to everyone that has left a review for the show. Uh, it's been so nice to read your feedback and uh, to just hear about what it actually is that has got you listening in the first place, how you came to K-Beauty. Uh, there are just so many really cool stories, so many people listening from all over the world. Uh, and it's just wild. It's so crazy. And that has very little to do with me, I am sure, and far more to do with the fact that K-Beauty is so popular. Uh, and, you know, it really, really has taken over the beauty world. It has set a new standard. I don't think at this point that any country, certainly in the last 10 years, has had a greater impact on beauty than Korea. And that's not just in terms of the products and the brands that we're using, but in the way that we as a collective, as the globe, people from all around the world think about the practice of skincare. Uh, and you know, it is crazy. So if you, I guess maybe if you haven't listened all the way back to our earlier episodes, and I don't blame you for that, we're now well into the hundreds. So that is a lot of content to get through. Uh, and I won't lie, the earlier episodes, when I listen back to them now, I'm, I find them a little bit cringy. My style of podcasting has changed over the last couple of years. I would hope, I would like to think that I have gotten a little better. Uh, you'll have to let me know, but the earlier episodes were a very long time ago, but I did run through how I sort of came to K-Beauty in the first place. Uh, and, you know, some of the things that attracted me to Korean beauty, but I thought what I would do is take a little trip down memory lane and really go through the origins of Korean beauty as it sort of became introduced overseas, how it has changed, how the focus has changed, how the products have changed, uh, the influence that Korean beauty has had on Western beauty products. I think I'm going to split this into two episodes just because there really is so much to say on this topic. Uh, but certainly I landed in Korea for the very first time in my life in 2011. 
Uh, I did a student exchange here for just four months, not a very long time at all. Uh, and I went to Yonsei University, which is one of the big universities here uh, in Korea. It is known as one of the Sky Universities, which stands for Seoul National University, Korea University, and Yonsei, SKY. Uh, and, you know, people here will tell you that that broadly translates to the Ivy League in the States. Certainly in terms of the prestige, how hard the unis are to get into, I think that's probably about right. Uh, but I came over here as an exchange student. I was doing the very last semester of my uni degree here. Uh, and the reason that I ended up coming to Korea in the first place was very much by chance and not by choice. So the story basically goes that I really wanted to go to the University of Hong Kong. And because I had already done another student exchange throughout my degree, my university told me I couldn't go to Hong Kong because it was too popular. There was only two places available and they wanted to give it to someone that hadn't ever been on exchange before. So they pretty much told me you need to choose somewhere else or just sit this one out. And I knew nothing about Korea. I knew I didn't want to go to Europe, though, because having lived in Italy before uh, when I was uh, I did a year of high school in Italy and I knew that, you know, with the time difference and everything going from Europe to Australia, that it just wasn't something I really wanted to do for four months. Having already done it before, I wanted to stay in Asia because it was just a little bit closer and easier to manage the time differences. Uh, and I had a boyfriend back in Australia at the time so you know I didn't want to be too far away too uncontactable so I ended up signing up to go to this university in Korea I had nothing I knew nothing about Korea literally nothing uh, my only sort of doorway window to Korea was a friend that I had made on my previous exchange and she happened to be Korean and she happened to be back in Korea temporarily doing her master's degree so I thought right I'll go there that way I will know at least one other person in the country and we can hang out together so off I went and that is sort of how my journey unfolded and when I got there there was obviously an entire world an entire country culture and place that I just had no concept about and one of the things that really grabbed my attention was this absolutely burgeoning world of Korean beauty products. Even back then in 2011, it was just on another level. Like the sheer amount of stores, the sheer amount of products was just mind blowing. And the approach that Koreans were taking to branding, to product design, to packaging design, to what they were putting into the products was very, very, very different even back then. And as a foreigner that had sort of no reference point, no idea about any of it, I was really, really blown away by what they were doing over there. And that is how I got into K-Beauty in the first place. So back in those days, the branding of all of the, the brands, the heritage brands, I guess you could say, was very distinct in a way that I think these days it is maybe not as distinct. And some of the examples that I can give you are brands like Etude, which back in the day was called Etude House. Now, every brand had a really, really distinct theme and they really teamed with the theme when it came to the products, the product names, and even the design of the stores. So Etude House had 
this princess theme and basically everything was done up really over the top to look like something almost out of like I don't know Cinderella's castle or something like that um, you know with all little bows and frills and things uh, that was the brand concept and everything that they put out the entire way that the store was done up with was like white on the outside and then like pink puffs and pastels and lots of whimsical and really just you know princessy themed for want of a better word stuff that was what they were really leaning into skin food I think probably has stayed the most consistent in terms of their brand identity uh, back in the day they were you know really trying to lean into that all of the ingredients that you can cook with in your kitchen, you can have in your beauty products. So they had lines like salmon. The salmon eye cream was really, really big. They had a gold caviar uh, line that was really popular. They had a honey line. I think they were one of the first brands to really uh, hit it out of the ballpark with their honey line. And they had these little honey pots. Everything was in like little honey pots and the spatulas and things like that were all teamed with the theme. Uh, and the stores were very much set up almost like you were going to a grocery store um, a, to pick up your fresh fruit and veggies. That was kind of the way the stores were set up. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was there back then. The face shop was really big. Nature Republic was really big. Uh, Nature Republic is a brand that is not doing as well, particularly overseas these days. Uh, you know, I think Nature Republic, Innisfree, they all really, really leaned into the green credentials. So that was an entire branding thing for them that, you know, um, in the case of Innisfree, that everything came from Jeju Island. But the stores themselves were done up to look like either a forest or a rainforest or something like that, with everything being very, very green. And this was before clean beauty and green beauty was a trend that brands were really hopping onto. The other brand that did really, really well in those days, certainly among like the younger crowd, I'm talking like teenagers, was Tony Moly. And Tony Moly has its origins as a packaging company. So they were actually a packaging manufacturer that made the product packaging for other brands. They realized that there was a market for these really cute, kitschy products. And so they put out their own line of, say, skincare and back in the day there used to be these little hand creams that came in like peaches that you would open up they had a product called tomatox which was literally in a tomato and it was like this white wash off mask in a tomato that contained tomato extracts uh, all really cute things like that but every brand had a really strong branding identity and you knew what you were going to get when you went there uh, and of course K beauty was very much fringe and niche overseas. It was not something that mainstream people were talking about. It was not something that people had heard of. Uh, I remember when I left my exchange at the end of the year in 2011, I bought back pretty much a whole suitcase full of products and gave them to people as Christmas presents because I was like, these are so cool. Like no one will have ever seen anything like this. And it was true. People were like, what is this? Because they even back then were packaging things with English uh, in the name. And that was in a, a big contrast to what the Japanese were doing at the time and even what the Japanese are doing today. Because obviously when it comes to Asian beauty, 
back then, Japan really had established itself as uh, a leader of Asian beauty uh, around the world. They had some really, really big heritage brands like SK2 that were known for really quality ingredients. They had, you know, the story, the origin story of their key ingredient, Pitura. Uh, and the branding was very sophisticated, very mature, it was very expensive, luxury, which it still is, obviously. Uh, but, you know, there was no necessarily English on a lot of the drugstore brands in Japan. If you went to Japan, it was your guess what any of it was. Like, unless you could read Japanese, it was really hard to know what you were buying. But even back then, Korean products had English on the front and then Korean on the back. So if you walked into one of the stores and picked it up, you would know you were looking at a moisturizer or, a, I don't know, a concealer or you know something less obvious maybe like a shampoo or something like that you would know that that's what it was and i think that really really helped k-beauty at that early stage uh to trans translate transfer overseas in the first place but back in those days certainly once i came back to australia and you know, I wanted to keep buying more of the products and the only way to do that was to go on to some of the Korean websites that were in Korean. You had to translate everything. You had to work out what the exchange rate was. You had to wait months and months for shipping, which you know, up until recently, you didn't need to do that. Now because of the pandemic, it kind of feels like we're back in that place where we're waiting ages for shipping from Korea. But you know, back in the day, that was part of the fun of it as well was how fringe and niche it was. You know, not everyone was into it uh, and certainly not everyone was into, you know, translating new products, but there was forums and groups and things like that online where we would talk about this kind of stuff. We would discover new brands and products that nobody had heard of. Uh, there were a lot of really popular blogs back in the day uh, where people would discuss their new discoveries, you know, and brands were not targeting foreigners. They weren't targeting bloggers in the way they are today. And I think that gave it its own really unique flavor. And it meant that a lot of really different stuff was being discovered. And I'm going to go into that uh, a little bit next week in next week's uh, the second half of the thing that, you know, the fact that so many brands are now directly targeting foreigners in particular, they're directly targeting bloggers, influencers, TikTokers, all of this. It's really, really changed the K-beauty landscape. Uh, and one of the things that it has taken away is this process of discovering new niche stuff, because particularly among the English speaking uh, influencers, it tends to be the same products and they're not necessarily even even products that are popular here or that are even being sold here some of the time. Uh, but you know, that has really, really changed K-beauty and I'm going to go into some of that. But back in those days, it really was quite kitsch and cutesy. I think a lot of people's early impressions, if they had come across K-beauty at that early stage, you know, with the macaron lip balms, there was the tangerine hand creams, there was the, you know, sheet masks shaped in 
you know, ice creams and things like that, people would have thought cute and kitschy. And I think that actually probably put off some people as well, that they just thought, mm, this is a little bit junky and a little bit rubbish. Uh, you know, it looks cute, but I don't want to put it in on my face. And that started changing probably about seven years ago, I would say, uh, around that time. And there came to be a shift from the really kitschy, uh, kitschy and cute things, you know, which although they do definitely still exist, I think the big, the first big shift that I noticed was over to natural K-beauty, natural beauty as people were calling it. Uh, this was like the cruelty-free era. Uh, and what went hand in hand with this was things like minimalist packaging minimalist ingredients, brands doing the call out, the free from, you know, we're free from six things, we're free from 10 ingredients that they had pinpointed as, you know, apparently harmful. Uh, cruelty free certification began to pop up and brands were talking about that. Uh, and, you know, they were promising everything from toxic free skincare to the EcoCert approval, the EWG certification, and even some brands were moving towards doing vegan certification. But what had originally skyrocketed K-Beauty to fame, this really unique packaging and the kitsch angle, that emphasis did start to shift. And I think it, it the new era was more of a natural focus. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things was that, you know, the K-beauty industry in general was maturing a little bit, obviously. Uh, but I think a lot of the uh, things that were driving the change was also consumers. Uh, obviously, the era of clean beauty has impacted all brands everywhere. K-beauty was definitely not immune to that. But the focus really then did shift from outside and what looked cute to what the, the the inside and the fact that it's what's on the inside that counts now k beauty had always been even at that point i think on the cutting edge of beauty for a long time people used to say back in the day oh k beauty's 12 years ahead of the game compared to western beauty there were certainly so many more companies on the ground here doing things spending money on r d doing new things that weren't being done in the west so i have no doubt that a lot of those predictions were true that korean companies really were doing things quite differently uh and you know i think part of that had to do with Korean culture, the fact that Koreans are always after the newest. They love a trend, whether it's cosmetics, food, anything. Koreans love to be on top of the trends. The trends change really, really quickly. There's a book that gets published here called Trend Korea every year. And I love reading that. It's like this thick tome of all of the things that are trending in Korea. Uh, you know, some of the recent ones have been Untacked, for example, the un, the, they're calling it the untacked shide, which is like the untacked generation. Everything from the skincare, from the food delivery, uh, all of these kind of services that you can now do untacked. That's one of the latest ones. But Koreans in general, they love a trend. They are extremely active online and on social media. And K-beauty companies were one of the really first ones, I think, to really get onto that as well. 
to directly engage with their consumers to seek the feedback and find out what they really want. Uh, until really recently, that was just not the way that Western companies approached dealing with customers. It was very much, this is the product we have made for you and we are now selling it at your local supermarket or your local beauty store or wherever. And you know, there wasn't as much of a drive to find out what people actually wanted. It was more the companies creating and putting products out there. And then, you know, that was what was available pretty much. Uh, and there was none of the same innovation going on. So I think that is another thing that really managed to catapult K-Beauty into the stratosphere, also among uh, foreigners as well, because they saw that, they saw that brands were having a conversation with their customers and that they were actually implementing the things that people were saying. If they didn't like a packaging element, they would change that. If they said, well, we want a product that has a higher percentage of this active ingredient in it, then they would tailor their new releases to that. Uh, and I think, you know, the corollary of that, what we're seeing now and one of the, the downsides, I think uh, I will go into in more detail in next week's episodes. But I think we're really seeing how that plays out on the other side when uh, that's the main becomes the company's main focus. But it did go through a point probably five to seven years ago where that was something that was really, really having KBD companies stand out. Their really direct marketing approach, communicating with their customers through Instagram, Facebook, email. They even, some brands would change the name of products. If people were like, you can't call a product like that. If you want to, you know, sell it in the States. Uh, one product that will always stick out in my mind is a product that was called, uh, in the forums, the racism essence, because COSRX came out with a new brightening essence that they called white power essence. They were thinking of it in terms of being a skin brightening product, which is obviously white here in Korea, that's what we call it. And they called it white power. And people were like, no, you cannot do that. Uh, here's why. And they changed the name. They quickly changed it to whitening power essence. And then I think later down the track, they did away with that naming altogether and they called it something else. But there was this real sort of direct in real time feedback that was going on between brands. Uh, so look, I'm going to wrap it up here for today. There is so much more that I want to go through. Uh, but for today, I'm going to leave it here and then I will be back with a second part of this series next Thursday for you.